Jeff Ebert, and welcome to my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, God's Good News for Imperfect People Like You and Me. And if you've been with us for a while, you know that we are working our way through the Gospel of John and kind of taking a, a, some time to see how John presents Jesus to us and uh, some uniqueness that we find in John's approach to Jesus that we don't see in some of the other Gospels. And this is Season 1, Episode 32, called A Conspiracy of Love. We're going to be in John chapter 11, starting with verse 25, and we're going to sneak into chapter 12, starting with verse 8. Uh, Last episode, it kind of guided us through Jesus's final miracle that's recorded in John. It was the raising of Lazarus from the dead, and it was this unprecedented display of Jesus's power as the Messiah, the Son of God, as God in the flesh, as we've seen over and over again in John's gospel. Jesus proved to all the people that he is Lord over life and death. There's nothing greater than that. And as I said in the last episode, it was a good thing Jesus used Lazarus' name when he called him out of the grave, because if he had just said, come out, every grave would have opened. Every grave would have opened just as they will on that last day. And that's the power of Jesus. But this miracle was the last straw, if you will. It caused an irrevocable split between those who worshiped Jesus and those who feared him. So we're going to start reading in John chapter 11, verse 45. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. And therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. And when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremony cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus. And as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone, anyone who found out where Jesus was, should report it so that they might arrest him. The response to Jesus is now polarized. People either love him or hate him. There's no middle ground anymore. Sounds a little bit familiar, doesn't it? The miracle causes the Sanhedrin to come to its most significant decision. And John records this dramatic moment when they solidify their conspiracy to kill Jesus. From that day on, they plotted to take his life. Well, what is a Sanhedrin? Remember that Israel is a conquered nation. They're under the authority of the Roman governor. 
The power of Caesar is enforced by Roman soldiers, but the Romans allowed a great deal of autonomy for their vassal states to run themselves as long as they, things didn't get out of line. The Sanhedrin was the ruling Jewish body that governed the daily affairs of Israel. It was composed of two primary groups, the Pharisees, who represented the people and the local synagogues, and then the Sadducees, who were the priests and who represented the temple. The Sadducees were more of a political party. They were the collaborators with Rome, and that gave them wealth and privilege and recognition. The status quo was serving them pretty well. And so they were mainly interested in perpetuating their own power and affluence. And Jesus was gaining more followers, and they feared a revolution against Rome was brewing. And that was the last thing they wanted. It would upset their apple cart, threaten to destroy their profitable relationship with the Romans, and maybe unleash the anger of the common people against them, because the people knew they were in cahoots with the Romans. Yet it was heading in that direction, and so they felt their whole way of life was at risk because of Jesus. And it's true. Jesus did threaten their way of life, because that's what Jesus does. He tears down altars. He exposes hypocrisy. Uh, altars to the false gods that we have erected in our lives. And there's no room for them and for Jesus in a person's heart. And so Jesus roots out those false things. And that's what he did when he cleared the temple of the money changers back earlier in the, in the book. Out you go. And so don't be surprised when people show antagonism towards Jesus. I mean, yes, there are some who are mad about some way that they were mistreated or disappointed by some church or some Christian in the past. And in some cases, those are legitimate issues that should and need to be addressed compassionately, especially if someone was abused in some fashion by a church leader or organization. There are some legitimate reasons for people feeling kind of angered towards Jesus and the whole Christianity thing. But the vast majority of people who respond emotionally in an antagonistic way towards Jesus, the root of it uh, is the threat Jesus poses to their status quo. It's like when Jesus encountered the demon-possessed man in Mark chapter 5, the Gerasene demoniac, how he told Jesus to go away even as he ran to kneel at Jesus' feet, had both those opposite forces at working in him. So great was this internal conflict that was going on inside of him, the demonic within him feared Jesus and said, are you here to torture me? The demonic in him perceived accurately that Jesus was a threat to its continued existence in the poor man who was already being tortured by the demonic presence. And so the members of the Sanhedrin feared Jesus as well. Because this brings up kind of a controversy that has plagued the church over many centuries. And that's the question, who is actually responsible for Jesus' death? Who killed Jesus? This issue got a lot of press a couple decades ago, I guess, when Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, came out. It really reignited this debate all over again. Now, folks, we can't remove Jesus from the Jewish context of his life. He was a Jew who lived in Israel. All his first followers were Jewish. He was killed because the local Jewish leaders conspired with the Romans to put him to death. The Jewish leaders got the ball rolling, but it was the Romans who did the deed. But nowhere in the Bible is there any hint of any kind of anti-Semitism because of Jesus' death. In fact, just the opposite, especially in the writings of the Apostle Paul, who passionately expressed his love for Israel and for the Jews as the people of God. Jesus was executed by the Romans uh, through their favorite method of execution, which was crucifixion. 
That's just history. It's not what, and it's not just what the Bible teaches. It comes from sources outside the Bible as well. For example, this is what we're told uh, in the writings of the most famous ancient Jewish historian, a guy named Flavius Josephus, who wrote about the same time that John was writing his gospel, between 90 and 100 AD. In his uh, book called Antiquities, uh, chapter 18, uh, section 3, uh, paragraph 3, it goes like this. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ, and when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had contemned him to the cross, those that loved him at first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and ten thousand other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians, so named from him, are not extinct to this day. Now, this is not a Christian faith claim. It's a historical fact corroborated by this non-Christian source. This Jewish context is inescapable. But that does not mean that there's any reason to blame the death of Christ on the Jewish people. That has been the criticism of the Passion of the Christ movie. Uh, for example, consider this statement. It was released by the Jewish Anti-Defamation League before the movie, movie was even released, you know, so goes like this. They wrote, uh, The Passion of the Christ portrays Jews as bloodthirsty, sadistic, and money-hungry enemies of God and will encourage violence against the Jews. They raised strong concerns over the potential for an increase in violence against Jews because of the movie. But is that a valid criticism? You know, I don't really think so. In fact, we get just the opposite view from the Jewish commentator David Horowitz, who wrote this. He said, The Passion of the Christ is not anti-Semitic. There is never any distancing of Jesus or his disciples from their Jewishness. And the film clearly states that it is a Jew that carries Jesus's cross and shares his misery. The film is faithful to the Gospels and therefore the Pharisees are Jesus's enemies and they and their flock do call for his death. I'm a Jew by tribe and an agnostic by faith. I was profoundly moved by this film, moved to tears. And I thought that's, that's a pretty interesting assessment coming from someone like him. Beyond the movie controversy, we should recognize that nowhere in any ancient Christian writings is there any indictment of the Jewish people for the death of Jesus. There is no anti-Semitism whatsoever. Take the Nicene Creed, which was finished about 381 AD. Uh, the formative expression of our faith clearly states that Jesus was crucified under who? Pontius Pilate. There's no mention of any blame on the Jews. And we see the exact same thing in the Apostles' Creed. Even in, in its earliest version from 180 AD, it says Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. We do have to acknowledge that there has been a terrible prejudice, bloodshed, and even genocide later on in the history kind of directed at Jewish people from Christians. And that kind of hatred is always a horrible aberration of what our faith in Christ should be. It's not the true gospel. Dr. Michael Brown, who holds a PhD in Semitic studies from New York University, is also a Messianic Jew. That means a Jewish person who believes Jesus is the Messiah. He wrote this. To hold Jews today responsible for the death of Jesus is absolutely unacceptable. The charge that Jews killed Jesus is not found in a single verse or on a single page anywhere in the New Testament. 
the sins of the whole world nailed Jesus to the cross, does not even occur to a true Christian to blame anyone for the death of Jesus because they thank God for the death of Jesus. That's why he came. The sins of the world nailed Jesus to the cross. He went there voluntarily, and historically there is no doubt that the Roman governor Pilate alone had authority to put Jesus to death or to set him free. No doubt it was the Roman soldiers who carried out the execution. That is so clear in the movie, but also in Scripture. If there are any evil characters in the movie, they're the sadistic, brutal Roman soldiers who torture Jesus. But I never hear anyone blaming the Italians for Jesus' death. So it's not anti-Semitic to state the historical truth that some, and I repeat some, Jewish religious leaders were part of the conspiracy to kill Jesus. And that means we should never blame the Jewish people for Jesus' death or in any way participate in anything that resembles anti-Semitism. Jesus loves the Jewish people, and so should we. So look at what happens in this meeting of the Sanhedrin. Caiaphas speaks out in frustration. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the, na- for the people than that the whole nation perish. One person's sacrifice will save the nation. John tells us that Caiaphas is speaking prophetically, and he doesn't even know it. I think it's great that sometimes God will use the strangest people, even people who don't know him. He'll use them to speak his truth. All truth is God's truth, and sometimes it comes through unusual sources. Caiaphas is a strange instrument to get that message across. Jesus is his main enemy, basically. But he states the dramatic truth that Jesus will die for the nation and for the world. God is able to speak even through imperfect people, even through people who don't believe in him. And I think that's amazing. God is speaking through imperfect messengers, even like Mel Gibson in his movie. It wasn't perfect. It is too gory. Gibson adds some non-biblical content that kind of reflects his hyper-conservative Roman Catholic beliefs and Roman Catholic you know, traditions and folklore. Still, God speaks through imperfect messages, messengers. So guess what? That means he can speak through you. Don't put self-imposed limits on what God might be able to do through your witness. Just pray and ask God to give you, your, give you eyes open to the natural opportunities that will come your way this week. Just in the normal circumstances of your day, keep your eyes open. Keep your spiritual radar on alert to see when God brings someone into your proximity. Casual conversation, a deep discussion with a friend in need. The opportunities are there, I guarantee it. But do we see them? So pray that God will use you as his imperfect witness this week, and then we'll see what happens. So the story continues. The Jewish people are now flocking to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Jesus is now basically an outlaw, the most important outlaw in all of history. There's a price on his head. There's a lot of speculation. When will he come? Does he have that kind of courage? Or will he be like uh, Saddam Hussein, you know, hiding in a hole in a basement? Jesus will come with death-defying courage and will enter Jerusalem openly and boldly on Palm Sunday. He will come at the right time. That's his Father's will. No one will stop him. Jesus had that exquisite control of the situation right until the time of his death. And Jesus' death was part of God's conspiracy of love from the very beginning. But before that happens, Jesus takes a short break to prepare himself for what lay ahead. Let's read now again in John chapter 12, the first eight verses. 
Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And then Mary took out a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, as keeper of the money bag. He used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Jesus is now in a time of privacy with his followers at Bethany. Mary and Martha are there with their brother Lazarus at a dinner party for Jesus. People are gathering. Martha was serving. She's back in character again, serving. Lazarus is at the table, and that's got to be weird. Like People were probably asking him all kinds of things, like, what was it like? Did you see a light? You know, all that kind of stuff. But it's Mary who does something so unusual. Right in the middle of dinner, she takes a pint of pure nard and pours it onto Jesus' feet and then wipes his feet with her hair. So why is this so special? Well, you have to know a little bit about nard, a perfume used to mask the odor of decay when bodies were being prepared for burial. It came from the oil of a plant that was grown only in India, so it was quite rare and very expensive. Nard was kept sealed in an alabaster flask with a long neck. You had to break the neck off to use it, and there was just enough in the flask for one application. It's not your regular household item kept in the spice rack. So I'm sure Mary had it on hand because she had just been preparing Lazarus's body for the grave just days before. And then Jesus brought him back to life. And so she broke it and poured it all out onto Jesus's feet. Her response was so completely opposite of Caiaphas. According to Jewish customs, never did a woman unbind her hair in public. That was something for children or prostitutes. A woman's hair was always kept bound up and only taken down in private. And yet Mary dries the Lord's feet with her hair. She understood who Jesus was and what was going to happen. And she also was part of God's conspiracy of love. Her love for Christ was active. She had to express it. Her love was not passive or reserved, but visible. She acted. She came out and she broke the vial of nard. It's a good challenge for those of us who are kind of cool in our relationship with God. We're not expressive, but love flourishes with active expression. Let me say that again. Love flourishes with active expression in human relationships and with God. How much we need that free expression in our relationship with God. Mary moved out and did something completely unselfconscious. Because some of us, you know, we're so self-conscious about our Christian faith, so passive in our love for Christ, so cautious, afraid someone's going to know. Uh, we speak in only general terms. We, we find it hard to say God is real. Christ is my Savior. I believe in the Bible. If I can share it with you what Christ meant to me, I'd love to have the chance to do that. You know, we're very shy. Mary's gesture was extravagant. She didn't come out and show the bottle around and tell everybody, hey, this is a great year for Nard. Oh, poor me, I'm given this expensive stuff. None of that. It was a selfless expression of love that touched Jesus deeply. 
anointing his body before he dies. Somehow Mary had it figured out right. Most of the disciples still didn't get it. They didn't quite understand the sacrificial nature of Jesus' mission. The rest of the disciples couldn't see that the cross was right ahead. But Mary figured it out. And Jesus was so moved that he says in the parallel passage in the Gospels of Mark and Matthew, he says, She has done a beautiful thing to me. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now that's a dramatic moving moment in Jesus's life as he prepares for the Christ for the cross. Quite an honor Jesus bestows on Mary here wherever the gospel is preached. She should be remembered for this act of devotion and sacrificial love. An extravagant display and such great irony in John's telling of the story with disgruntled Judas carping in the background. A year's wages, that's too much to waste on the feet of Jesus. That's what finance committees are for. We don't have the resources to waste our money that way. And John adds the subtle subtext that looking backwards provides it turns out Judas was dipping his fingers into the pot and keeping some for himself. If they ever did a forensic audit, Judas would have had a, had a, had a would have been up a creek. It's so hypocritical to complain so loudly and then secretly to be embezzling money for himself, and yet that's the reality. Makes the idea of him getting his thirty pieces of silver not such a sudden rash decision by Judas, but actually sort of a logical conclusion for someone who's been seeking financial gain through Jesus's ministry, cutting corners all the time. If the end was coming, and maybe he read the writing on the wall for that, if the end is coming, then my meal ticket will be gone, so I better get ahead of this train wreck, make a few bucks by selling Jesus out. Maybe that was his thinking. You know, people who focus on the money, they'll never see the need to just waste it in adoration of Jesus. But if our Jesus is real, and we waste our money adoring him, isn't he the God who has the cattle on a thousand hills? the God of infinite resources. God, won't God supply all our needs as scripture promises? Don't let the money drive your decisions, especially if you're a church leader. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things can be added unto you. So do you love Christ this morning? Do you love him? Then like Mary, let's express it. Let's actively, unselfconsciously, even extravagantly in acts of love and service for Jesus shake. What activity have we done to show him that we love him recently? This week, have you done anything that shows that you love Jesus? Have you ever told him in prayer that you just love him? We should express to him as his dear child that we do love him. Nothing touches God's heart more you know, than that. Because parents, doesn't it just kind of melt your heart when your kids do that? Those of you who have children, if they come up to you and say, Daddy, I love you. I mean, then they could ask for the house, the car, you name it, you'd give it to them. They could have it all because it means so much when love is expressed. Have we shown Christ this week that we love him? Have we voluntarily moved toward him in prayer? Have we in a selfless way served him? Do we love Christ? We'll express it to him and others. You know, Mary gave it all. There was no return. She couldn't even recycle the bottle. She gave it all. Love has an element of extravagance about it. Real love cannot think of any other way to give than to give in totality, completely, extravagantly. No wonder Jesus was, Judas was so upset. We're told that nard was worth a year's wages. Now just think about that for a moment. 
Think about that line on your W-2 form that tells you your yearly uh, net income. Would you be willing to see that poured over Jesus' dirty feet and disappear into the dirt? Mary did an extravagant thing. And I hope we would have had some ridiculous abandon in our love for Jesus at some level. Because Jesus gave it all for us, we should give our all to him. As Jesus moves towards the cross, we're going to see him modeling even more this extravagant love. The steps he takes are going to be very difficult ones. But I hope we're gripped by the extravagance of the cross like never before. Jesus didn't say, you know, look me over, poor me. They really beat me up. There's none of that. His death and his resurrection are an extravagant gift. He voluntarily, in a conspiracy of love, broke the flask of his body and poured out his life's blood for you and for me and for the sins of the world. That's this episode. I hope you have a great week. Take care.